Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a LitFest highlight. Anyone participating in LitFest is invited to sign up for a three to five minute reading slot. Readers are energized by adrenaline and buzz long after they've read their words to the always warm and eager-to-be-entertained audience. The first LitFest participant reading took place on June 12, 2013, and featured 12 readers from a mix of genres. Welcome, and thank you for coming out tonight. Um, you are a lucky crowd, I think, uh, because you're here at the first of three participant uh, readings for LitFest 2013. Um, uh, there's this one tonight, and uh, then we have another one on Friday of this week, and then another one next Thursday, the 20th. Um, and uh, really, uh, despite what they tell you uh, about the other events at LitFest, these are the marquee events of LitFest. These are the ones you're, you'll be glad you, ca- you came to. And um, I... I, I actually mean that pretty earnestly. I'm, um, I'm always so impressed and heartened by uh, the participant readings at LitFest because I think they um, exemplify the uh, couple of the things that I think are the best of what Lighthouse represents to those of us who love to write. Uh, the first is that um, you hear uh, from voices who you haven't heard from before um, and you hear the, the great promise and flourish of people who are discovering their voices, who are, um, who are learning their craft, who have gotten very good at their craft and who are trying new things with it, um, and who love, love to write so much that they keep coming back to these events. And, um, and I really applaud those people, uh, particularly because I'm one of them. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm right there. Um, and the other thing that I truly love about the participant readings here is that... Uh, uh, it demonstrates what I think is maybe the greatest strength of the Lighthouse community, which is the audience. Um, we have the best audiences for readings in the world, honestly. Um, we have the warmest rooms, the most... Yeah. Give yourselves a hand, because uh, the, rest of the, night's, the rest of the night's for the readers. Um, we, we, we do. We, uh, this, is the, this is the greatest place to get up and read your stuff because people are so loving and interested and excited about it. And, um, you know, and bless them for that. And bless those two uh, funny people who run this place uh, for, for bringing this together every year to do this. Um, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, we have 12 readers tonight. Uh, we, have, we have some fiction. We have some nonfiction. And we have some poets. Um, we're going to do six. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to, um, I guess, do another six, um, if my math is right. Um, and I think, uh, Carrie Booth, that I was supposed to make an announcement about the plumbing. Is that still an issue? Okay, I'm not going to make any announcements about the plumbing. <laughs> Occasionally. Occasionally. Um, but I'll get into that later. Um, I'm going I'm to jump right into our first, uh, first reader of the night. Our first reader of the night uh, 
Leia Rogan Roper, Roper, sorry, Leia Rogan Roper. Uh, Leia Rogan Roper's uh, flash fiction has been published by Connotation Press, Weird Year, and Monkey Puzzle, among other literary journals. You love that for flash fiction. They have the best names. Um, her nonfiction has been published by Mountain Gazette, Powder Magazine, and Serenity. She teaches writing at Arapahoe Community College and works for Fast Forward Press, a small press devoted to compressed forms of literature. Tonight she's going to read The House Sitters, which was published by Blood Lotus, Blood Lotus Review this year. Please welcome L- Leah, Roper, Leah Rogan Roper. Thanks. Hi. This is called The House Sitters. We drove up the road with the long brown angel grass blowing in the wind, and Dad put his hand over mine as the car crunched into the gravel driveway. The lady came out of the house and smiled and waved at us. She looked real pretty in her red dress. She explained the cats and dogs and horses to Dad. And sometimes Louie misses us so bad that he goes on a hunger strike and just doesn't eat for a couple of days, the lady said, patting Louie on the head. Don't you gooey, Louie. She pinched the dog's face. He looked embarrassed. But if you just keep putting the food out for him and taking him for walks, eventually he'll start eating again. Do you have the first two weeks in cash like we talked about, Dad asked, and I could tell he'd been trying not to ask it too quick. Well, yes, it's here. Your references were very good, but I have to tell you we've never left for more than a week before. I hope everyone is okay. She looked hard at Dad then, and I wished I could pull her into the corner for a minute and tell her what Dad was like. She smiled down at me. Poor lady. Where's the bathroom again? I asked her. She'd given us a tour of the whole house, but it all seemed to go in one big circle. Well, there's one right here by the mudroom. She pointed to the door down the hall. I walked slowly toward it, wishing she'd follow me, but not sure what I would say if she did. Dad grinned and winked at me when she looked outside, holding his finger up to his mouth. I went into the bathroom and closed the door. I turned on the water and looked at myself in the mirror. The too small dress Dad had insisted I wear was cutting into my armpits. Maybe this time, Dad would just do the job he signed up for, just take care of the house and the animals. Maybe when he got paid, we could rent a little ranch house of our own down the road with a horse or two. Maybe the lady would hire me to come and exercise her horses after school. I made an ugly face at myself in the mirror. And maybe zombie mermaids would take over the earth between now and when the lady returned to find her house empty. I turned off the water slowly and walked back out into the hall. Well, you have all of our numbers and everything, she said. I guess we'll see you in five weeks. Have a nice trip, ma'am. Don't worry about a thing. Why did he have to add that extra line in there? I glared at him, mad that he would tell her not to worry about a thing as he was probably mentally pawning off her belongings. Bye, Dolores. Nice to meet you. I was still glaring at Dad when she said that. Totally forgot that he had made my name Dolores this time. Dad came over and put his arm around me, kind of hard. Say goodbye, Dolores, he hissed at me. Bye, I told her, real short. She probably thought I was just a rude little girl. I thought about breaking away from Dad, running after her for a second, telling her not to do it, not to leave us here, not to trust us, but I just couldn't risk it. She sighed hard, and I could tell she was kind of questioning herself, didn't want to go. Just stay, just stay, make up an excuse, anything, just tell us to leave. I projected my thoughts at her real hard, and she almost set her suitcase down. I could feel it, but then she just yanked it up and walked out the door. 
the fir- the first few days were fine. They were always my favorite. That's when that was when Dad actually did the job he was hired to do. I got to help take care of Louie, the horses, and the cat. Dad figured that most people would ask someone else to drop by and check up on things. And sure enough, about day four, a neighbor came by. Hello, anybody home? He peeked into the barn where I was brushing out Mindy's mane. You must be Dolores, he smiled at me. Really, why Dolores of all the dorky names? I'm Stanley. I live down the way. Is your dad around? Dad was already right there in the doorway before I could say anything. I could tell he wasn't trusting me after the last time either, when I'd answered the phone and managed to drop enough hints that the nice couple came back from their vacation early. If only they hadn't made the mistake of telling Dad that they were heading home. I might be somewhere else right now. I always picture the people when they come home from their vacation, walking in the door. From the outside, everything probably looks all right, but maybe something is a little off. The curtains are closed. If there's any farm machinery, it's probably been sold. Maybe a planter tipped over by Uncle Marco when he comes to help put everything in the moving van in the middle of the night. Then there's that second when the door is swinging open, and they're still feeling good about being home, and then they see it, how everything is gone. I picture the lady ducking out to make sure she's at the right address, wondering if it might all be a big mistake, then rushing back in to see everything missing, the furniture, the clothes, the jewelry, the tools, the art, the plates, the knickknacks, the horses, everything. I picture her running from room to room, gasping, hysterical, the stink of untended dog and cat. Please, God, don't let the animals be dead when she gets here. I always heap up extra food and put out a few bowls of water before I go. As soon as I'm old enough, I'll run away from him. Maybe I'll come back here and apologize, tell her how he did it, the fake references and names, the storage area so he didn't have to put this address in the paper or on Craigslist in case any of her friends might notice, how he made me go down with him to the pawn shop three towns away and tell the man that it was my mother's jewelry, that she had died, that we needed the money for this month's rent, but that my dad had promised we'd be back for it, that he was waiting in the car because he was so embarrassed. The pawn shop owner would look over at him, and Dad would just lift his hand up the littlest bit. He'd, al- he laughed, he'd always laughed when I brought the cash out to him. You have to get up pretty early to get on top of a pawner. They've heard it all, he'd say, messing up my hair. The lady probably wouldn't believe it if I told her how he packed up and left town the next day, how he got the house phone switched over to that pay-as-you-go cell that he dumped after he talked to her the last time. I smiled crookedly at the neighbor as I listened to Dad subtly pumping him for information. I wanted to scream, don't you get it, don't you? But I just kept brushing Mindy's tail. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Up next, um, we have up next we have Jeanette Jeanette Matusiak. Um, Jeanette is a nonfiction writer, a dear friend, and is working on a memoir about her Polish immigrant parents and the effect um, of her father's illness and how that shaped her sense of love and self identity. In this, in the scene that she's going to read for us. Um, the narrator is helping her parents move out of their childhood home. Interesting um, <laughs> transition. And the narrator finds herself thinking about the credenza from, uh, and this is from a chapter of the of the memoir titled um, "Keeping Hildreth Street." Please welcome Jeanette Matusiak. 
thanks. I just want to say two quick things. Um, one, um, I'm in Andre Debus's workshop this week, and uh, this is uh, something I submitted, and I just rewrote um, this scene um, today. So we'll see if I hit some notes with that. And uh, secondly, I'm going to attempt my father's Polish accent, and I really hope that out of my nerves I don't make him sound Japanese, um, <laughs> because he's not. <clears throat> As a young teenager, I found myself reaching into the credence a lot to retrieve a stored ring or a receipt I didn't want to lose. The rims of the hanging cups would clink against each other like bells, inevitably drawing out the yell, Moje Kristalle! from my mother. Miraculously, I never broke anything except the outside pane of glass, which I managed to smash my head through once when the phone rang, thinking it was a boy. I leapt up from the floor straight into it. I had accidentally left the door wide open, something that my father consistently warned me not to do. When no blood was shed from my head after the dramatic crashing shards fell around my bare feet, Dad laid into me with every Polish admonishment he could think of. The literal translation played back in my head like this. Lightness of cholera! Has insanity taken you over? Killing yourself for that stupid phone! I told you! Wooden head. Jesus and Mary, now you've done it. Did you cut yourself? <laughs> I burst out laughing. Stop laughing, he said. It's good your head's thick. His strong words were comical to me, juxtaposed to the Three Stooges scenario I had just put myself through, just like the ones we had watched together so often. We'd often recite quotes to each other. Jackie Gleason, Peter Sellers even Cheech and Chong. For a while, Dad asked, the time. Dad asked for the time like this. What watch? Ten watch, I'd answer, the smile already creasing our faces, then in unison, such much? <laughs> it's not that Dad's English was that bad. It's just our favorite lines from Casablanca. I wheeled him to his twin bed, now in the big room, our second living room. Okay, that's good. Dad noticed. Uh, Dad said, not, uh, noticing exactly where the wheelchair had to be placed for the transfer to work. Once his body is on the bed, it's almost impossible to push up. Dead weight and no leverage. I had tried before, only to pull his clothes halfway off and feel the sharp strain of something inside my body, like when I sneeze too hard. The pedals, the pedals. Yeah, yeah, I know. I lifted up one heavy and stiff foot at a time. I know not to take the slippers off, better traction. Turned up the foot rest in one motion, laid the foot down, and released the clasp, turning the whole thing sideways. Then off. I hated that part of the wheelchair. I had so many shin bruises, so many times I took a step back right onto them with a bare foot and yelled, fuck! Dad yelled, god damn it, move em. I told you. We yelled without apology. We did it, and then it was done and over with. We didn't hold grudges at our home. There was no room for them. I placed my 16-year-old leg between his, the other skewed slightly to the side. I slipped my arms underneath his pits, my nose against his ear, the faint smell of grease in his hair. Just as I moved, the chair started to roll. No, the brakes, the brakes! Oh, you cannot forget the brakes. I was silent as I clasped my fist around the lever and pressed the metal firm into the rubber. I thought about how well this motion, this pressing, absorbed itself, absorbed me, a tiny punching bag for my fingers. I tried again, 
arms under the armpits, my low back in a tabletop, so far from the rest of my body, it felt disconnected. Don't pull my neck. Pull my neck toward you. Dad, I don't want to pull your neck. It looks like it hurts. You're going to hurt yourself. It doesn't hurt me. Just do it. His total reliance was on me, and his body would perilously teeter between the bed and the floor. We have fallen before. I have done it wrong. Miscalculated the steps between our feet. Pulled too hard or not enough. Felt him toppling, all his heaviness slipping through my hands, unwieldy and unstoppable. No breaks except for the heart. Just as I was ready to lift, I'd say, Dad, so remember when Jimmy Durante walks in with the elephant and someone stops him and asks, where are you going with that elephant? By then we have whispered, one, two, three. And I'd have him propped up vertical in my arms, his legs resting bent underneath for a brief second, like a string puppet relying on help from above to move. A sense of anxiety and dread filled me each time. During the crucial pivot to the bed, I would mimic Durante's trademark gravel voice and say, what elephant? My clumsy movements coupled with his laughter brought us crashing onto the bed in hysterics many times. My arms sometimes still stuck behind him, my face plastered against his neck and the pillow laughing. I'd leave a kiss on his cheek on the way back up. It was better when my giant brothers were home. With one good hug under the arms, they could lift him with a force I was not capable of. Move out of the way, please, they would say. I was only too happy when they were around. I shirked it whenever I could. But since I was the youngest, I always seemed to be around more. Our movie quotes were always important to me. Oops. Oh my gosh, this printed the wrong way. <laughs> oh no. Um, I'm sorry, I can't finish. <laughs> Yeah, would you guys mind if I printed and just read the last page later, maybe? We'll bring you back on. All right, great, thanks. Thank you, Jeanette. That, that was a preview of uh, what Jeanette's going to be reading a little later tonight. Um, and I, for one, am hooked. So I can't wait. Thank you. We'll hear a little bit more from her later. Um, our next reader tonight is uh, Laura Van Etten. Um, before receiving her MA and MFA in fiction, Laura Van Etten worked at homeless and battered women's shelters, volunteered with that uh, youth at risk, um, facilitated writing, writing groups for imprisoned women, and uh, you, didn't, where is she? You, didn't, you didn't want me to mention the thing with Mother Teresa, did you? No. Um, but I'm sorry, making fun of her good works. Uh, but these are all aspects um, that inform the characters in her writing. Um, she teaches creative writing and composition at uh, Pima Community College, which is in Arizona. Um, currently, she's sending out her first novel, and she's underway on her second novel. Um, and her nonfiction has appeared in The Sun and The Superstition Journal. Uh, and her fiction has appeared in Sanskrit and Crazy Horse. Uh, please welcome Laura Van Etten. Thank you. 
Anything that you think is missing, it's because it printed out wrong. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this is called Real Fake Gold. Not to be mistaken for the ordinary type to do Sudoku at a Starbucks, City Boy was old school punk, aging chic, classic, would tuck a New York Times in his canvas tote, cheek kiss his natural fabric wearing wife and head for the thick wooden tables of the Brooklyn Library with an old school number two pencil. The party might tell Kira would include the library and the crossword. City Boy would sip sparkling mineral water in the cafe bars, shadow watch the horn-rimmed gothic girls competing in the nighttime spelling bees. He would tell Kira about the spelling bee, but there would be a silence on the wife question because the wife question was not allowed. A warning sigh on the sexual appeal of the gothic girl question because those, he'd explained, insulted his integrity. But it would be a snappy return to A-OK -okay when he told Kira yes, he'd confirm tickets to Arizona, and yes, it was Kira who was the most special. There might be a brief unpleasantry when Kira mentioned the brevity of the visit, hinted violations of the most special clause. But once tickets were confirmed, Kira was always on much better behavior. And somewhere in the clouds, he transfer transformed from Brooklyn husband, arrived in the desert as all Kira's, almost sorta, for a while. They worked hard against all the obvious cliches, all three of them, really. He might arrive having saved the spelling bee complimentary red and white writing pad as a gift for Kira, because sometimes they filled in really great words together. Like on a Sunday, driving I-10 West, deciding, yes, let's go for it, as the roadside signs announcing <coughs> the thing built the anticipation of the mystery you must see for yourself. And it was too much for them to let that mystery go. Even though they knew it was just a roadside tourist attraction, they said, yes, let's go for it. And they did. Oh, they went for it. They took exit 322, paid the dollar, and of course it was all crazy junk. Hot, corrugated steel sheds filled with wood carvings of hell's tortured souls. Dusty historical torture devices. And they held each other and laughed and laughed and laughed. As they were leaving, he said, wait, tugged Kira to a dusty gumball machine advertising real fake gold jewelry. There were rings inside the cloudy glass, and he turned the knob. Climbing back in her car, click, click, turn signaling back onto I-10, it was important that Kira quickly reframe the ring that emerged from the gumball machine as not symbolic, not a nothing, that might have been prep for four weeks later when he called and said, she's pregnant, it's mine. When Kira hung up, a finch at her feeder screamed because the finch didn't understand that hunger was no longer relevant, that suddenly survival odds had grown very slim, that there was no guarantee everyone would make it out alive. Even the wife, Kira thought, was close to 40, so it might kill her, too. Kira didn't find hunger or sleep or ever plug the, that phone back in, but she researched late-life births, the likelihood of an embryonic web of mutated genes, a deformity, a monster child, a slimed curse that would spit from the wife's thighs and open its mouth and wail and wail and wail. And that would be all he would ever hear every time he replayed the memory of whatever, it wa whatever night it was when he turned to his wife and said, yes, let's go for it.
Thank you. That was that was vivid. <laughs> and and this this is what I love about the um, the nature of these readings is that um, I next um, get to introduce to you a, a good friend of mine. Uh, I'm I'm going to admit up I have it. It's not up front because we've already started. But I'm going to admit up front that uh, I I have a particular fondness for poets. Um, so I'm always excited when I get, her, get to introduce one. Uh, and my, my good friend, uh, Theresa Wenham, is going to be reading next for us. And she's, she's a great poet. And um, her bio that I'm going to present to you is a little, um, a pro, uh, follows neatly from what we just heard from Laura. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Um, Theresa Wenham has been taking workshops with Lighthouse since 2001, when her babies pushed her into the arms of another family one evening a week for six weeks to think about things bigger than diapers and feeding schedules. Um, and just to follow up on that, both, both of her babies uh, have ended up in Lighthouse poetry classes as well, and it's been, it's been great teaching them. Um, tonight she's reading a fine poem called The, the Lake Steam Baths, which uh, recently won first place at the Metro Rights of Spring contest. Um, and uh, it's part of uh, Therese's collection of poems about things that Denver collects, which I, for one, am looking forward to seeing in print soon. Please welcome Therese Wenham. Hi. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. It's really a pleasure to be reading with you and hearing everyone's work. Um, all right, this is the lake steam bath. One must learn to be fearless of bodies. The aged, as well as the young women, stripped of adornment except marked skin. Perhaps a ring. Mercy offers her salts. She works naked and barefoot in the wet room, giving scrubs on the tiled bench out of the heat. The double garage-sized sauna holds dry heat. Twin ovens fuel the oxidizing of tiles and bodies. Iron plumbing exposed along the waist of the room sprouts spigots of icy relief in in black buckets for women. Thighs and brows pearl with sweat salt, rubbed crystalline into softening skin. Everywhere there is the truth of skin. Bathers rejuvenated in wet heat, a quiet solace of steam and heat for salt of the earth. Long-nippled, rolling down bodies, or small-breasted jaguars, these women walk equally naked through the white room. The scent of the eucalyptus room invites us to its moist steam which skins the ceiling in webs of droplets splashing on women, their conversations muffled in a fog of menthol heat. Daily stress has pulled and strained the body to be assessed with a grain of salt. If I listen, I can hear the salt. Conversations kept low and deep in the room. 
pushing beyond the cloak of the body and allowing us to peel back the skin of what does not matter in this heat. We are all shades of skin. We are women in the kinship of other primordial women. As always, we are mining the salt we taste in tears, which the intimate heat extracts from the pores of all in the room. Thus we climb into the peace of our skin, dressed in braver bodies, liberated by the heat, transformed by the room, blessed by the salt, united in skin, we leave pure women buoyed by our bodies. Thank you. Thank you, Theresa. Um, is it? Can I mention the, the about the the news about this poem? Is that okay? Sir, uh, I, I I recently found out that uh, uh, the poem that Theresa just read has been accepted for publication in a fine journal uh, in July. So, congratulations. Um, many of us met uh, our next reader, uh, Petra Perkins, um, last year at uh, the Grand Lake Retreat, and we're very happy that she's here for Lit, has, Lit Fest this year. Um, Petra Perkins is the author of essay, fiction, creative nonfiction, memoir, humor, and science writing, as well as, and this is top secret, erotic poetry. Recently, she's had three pieces published, fiction and nonfiction in a literary journal and online magazine, and in the last year, she's placed as a finalist in six writing contests. Um, tonight, she's going to be reading a short nonfiction humor piece called Wildlife. Please welcome Petra Perkins. Hi, I'm really glad to be here and read this story to you. It's called Wildlife, <clears throat> and this is a true story. And I just want to say that um, the material came from a friend of mine, and I told her if she didn't write about it, I would. So I gave her a year, <laughs> and she didn't write about it. My friend Barbara lives in a sexy mountain cabin in a remote, isolated wilderness with two dogs, Sheba and Lucky, two barn cats, no official names, a horse, Mr. Ed, she said he curses when he's unhappy, and a cow named How Now Brown Cow. Her cabin has a gourmet kitchen and a winding staircase leading to a jacuzzi overlooking the Rocky Mountains. Barbara does get lonely out there in paradise. She confided that her ideal partner is a rugged mountain man, a species bountiful on Pakistani websites Possibly, but not here. She's the quintessential outdoor person who would rather be hiking, biking, skiing into town, or spotting wildlife. And the wilder, the better, she insists. Strangely, she's had three successive boyfriends named Michael. <laughs> After the second disastrous Michael, I said, I suggested she move on to the next letter of the alphabet. <clears throat> 
uh, Nathan, Nils, Nehemiah. <laughs> Enter Michael three. God, he was cute. A psychologist to boot and adventurous, so I thought, okay, maybe, maybe he'll stay. That We'll see. Everything went fine in the honeymoon days. He loved cooking, caring for the animals. They read poetry in her four-poster bed made of oak tree trunks. They adopted a kitten named Pussy. <laughs> Later, some noticeable tension developed. At a dinner, I overheard, Michael, where's the pasta bowl? You rearranged my whole damn kitchen. I can't find anything but your shit. Minor bickers became major quarrels, then shouting matches. The first time he backed away, he called on the cell phone. Barb, he said, I think we need a break. I need some time. She gave him five minutes after she hung up on him. There was a frenzy of reciprocal calls followed by wild makeup sex. It was wonderful, she sighed, when we met for wine spritzers. He's a wolf. It's a dilemma, isn't it? When you see something your best friend doesn't, there's no telling her, <laughs> especially if it's about a guy. If she were making a big career mistake, that would be one thing. But a man, no fucking way. He emailed his next intent to break up. A, predi a predictable parade of heart-rending messages marched across their screens. Michael returned immediately, just in time to feed the zoo. I saw them the next day, glowing with sun-kissed cheeks and that bed hair look. Sweet, yet in that moment, I read their future like a gypsy fortune teller. Call me intuitive. Weeks later, he sent Barb a text. It's over. We are done. R was the lowercase letter R. <laughs> Christmas bliss inspired them to couple yet again for one day. Then radio silence. On New Year's Eve, they arrived holding hands at a party. They wore flashing holiday lights on matching hats. Just after the midnight kiss, they parted ways for good. January 1st, Barbara woke to hear how now, baying or wailing, whatever cows do in distress. She ran to the barn and was stunned to see the poor bovine desperately hanging, banging her head, thrashing, mooing, trying to rub a string of Christmas lights off her giant, lyre-shaped rack of horns. Barb had decorated the barn door with festive lights, and the cow had somehow blundered into them. In vain, she struggled to soothe How Now, but this was one crazed cow, which repeatedly lunged at her, jabbing her throat with horn tips. Frightening, Sheba and Lucky became frightened, too, and circled them, barking, yelping in terror. Mr. Ed got in the act and raced around the pasture, neighing, Shit! <laughs> Stopping, <laughs> Stopping only to kick the barn. <laughs> The cats nervously paced the rafters. Pussy jumped with open claws onto How Now's back, riding like a bronco. The scenario went on for a quarter hour until Barb managed frantically to flip a rope around the cow's neck, tightening it enough to still her. She and How Now locked eyes in a panting stare down. After she cut off the string of lights, Barb lost it. She, put up, she pulled out her cell phone and speed dialed Michael. <laughs> <laughs> 
How dare you leave me at the holidays? You left me alone with all these animals. You dumped me with a text? What kind of psychologist does that? Without a break, she began to heave, sob, weep, and shriek. The cow had gored her. The horse and the cats had gone berserk. She was insane. Barb didn't have to tell me, a fellow woman. I knew she was begging for tender mercy, a kind word, sympathy, compassion. When, he fi- when finally she silenced her tirade, he gave it to her. Would you like me to call 911? <laughs> making up new lyrics to the Mr. Ed theme song right now, are we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you, Fetcher. That was wonderful. Um, uh, we have one more reader, and then we're going to take a, a five-minute break, uh, get refreshments, and uh, we'll come back. Um, our next reader tonight uh, is the fine poet, Jenny Hoyle. Uh, Jenny Hoyle has been part of the Lighthouse community for more than 10 years, and she's written her share of poems in that time. Uh, I'm going to drop in the adjective. She's written her share of exceptional poems in that time. Um, the poem she's going to read to us tonight is about the writing life um, on those dark and stormy nights when the process becomes a process of rehab and triage. Um, the poem she's going to read tonight is titled Tell You What. Please welcome Jenny Hoyle. Just do a little heightened sound check. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Very good. Thank you. Well, it's just so nice to see all of you and hear this wonderful, wonderful work. It's just great to be here. So I'm taking you into my confidence with this. Tell you what. Take this poem home. Give it a stiff drink. Listen to its troubles. A full confession. Take its little fists and pry them open. Kiss the palms. Take this poem home and take it to your bed. Not for sex. It is already fucked. Take it to your bed for the pure animal heat of your mortal frame. As you hold it in your arms, lick its face over and over until at last you hear it mew. And if, after all this, you fail, know that you were not the first and then build this poem a tiny little coffin and move on. Thank you. So apropos of nothing, um, and 
because I'm still kind of buzzing from uh, the poem that Ginny read to us right before the break and, and, and how lovely that was. Um, I felt, I felt uh, that I wanted to open up the second half with a very short poem, and I hope you'll bear with me. Um, but I think it says a lot about, um, about much like Ginny's poem uh, did, about, about what we're all working towards here and what we're trying, striving for uh, you know, in, our, in our pursuit of our art. Um, the poem is titled Life Goal Number 31. That's Life Goal Number 31. Sorry? Oh, it's, it's by the, uh, the poet J. Diego Fry. Life, life goal number 31. When I finally jello wrestle Barbara Walters, I'll hit her hard. I will not falter. I'll pile drive and somersault her. I'll eat the lunch of Barbara Walters. Um, next we have... Um, coming up next we have a terrific writer. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing from him. Um, Rudy Milena. Uh, woo! As, as, as the... Uh, as the as the poets say, woo indeed. Um, when Rudy Milena was eight years old, he would ask his grandpa Sam to tell him a story every time they were alone together. And his grandpa would tease and say no because he'd heard that Rudy had gotten nightmares from the last time he told him a story. And this would continue until Rudy begged and they would sit side by side on a saggy couch in the dark living room. And Sam composed wondrous stories on the spot for Rudy about the, the Cocoa Man and caves and treasures. And Rudy is still trying to recreate those stories. Uh, Rudy's going to read an excerpt tonight from his short story, On the Avenue, which is a prequel to his recently published story, We Couldn't Keep Up. So please welcome Rudy Milena. I'm uh, happy to be representing men at this, at this reading. <laughs> and I'm right in the middle, so it's kind of a Rudy sandwich, I guess. <laughs> Fifth grade was hard for me, the year my mama had her nervous breakdown. She disappeared like a burrowing beetle buried beneath quilts in her darkened bedroom. When she chose to shuffle around in her shroud robe, her eyes were unfocused and her mouth slanted. With her hair plastered to her damp forehead, she slurred words. And when she hugged me tight, she smelled like fear. I, I learned to cook hot dogs and scrambled eggs, and I washed clothes in the perpetual silence of our home. Miguel Alfonso, my dad, didn't talk to me much. What with his cluttered grocery store and his tending to my sick mama, giving her pills and salving her temples after shock treatments. I figured out a way to stuff back my emotions and put on a fake face at school, even though I was crazy nervous in my guts. It was all about pretending to be someone I was not. 
My teacher, Mrs. Weaver, didn't like me much, and I didn't care. I didn't like her either. I knew Mrs. Weaver's first name was Gladys, but there was nothing happy about her. Nothing warm for children. The title Mrs. in front of her name. The, the title Mrs. was in front of her name, but she wore no rings on her fingers, on her fat fingers, and that part made me glad. I couldn't imagine anyone married to her. <laughs> Mrs. Weaver hefted bumper car breasts that no brazier, no brazier or female underwear could carry safely. We steered well clear of her to avoid being bumped by her heifers. She carried a stench on her skin like baloney left out too long. Once I saw up her polka dot dress as she sat down behind her desk with her knees apart, her flesh puckered like a golf ball's. I looked away in disgust. Glad bags was nowhere pretty as my mama had once been. My mama and my dad had gone out dancing or something and my mama wore a red dress with black socks, with black heels. Her sleek black hair was wavy and cascaded down her back. She looked like the lady who sang Girl from Ipanema. When glad bags called on me to read, I felt my body shrink in the chair and saw the words swim on the page like letters in alphabet soup. Her pointing finger was a ray gun melting me. She always got mad, and if I didn't start to read right away, she'd tell me, in her witch voice, to sit in the hall. The students in the classroom snickered as I passed, and if their feet were in the way, I stomped them. <laughs> I'd sit on the cold tile floor with my legs sprawled. Sometimes older boys passed and kicked at my legs, and I kicked them back. One day during lunch hour, I decided to sneak from the, from the crowded gym and let the air out of Glad Bag's 53 DeSoto, parked along Pikes Peak Avenue. I walked as if on my way to the toilets and continued on out the front door. No grown-up was around to stop me. The cream-colored car with the brown top had an ugly silvery grill that I kicked. At each fat white wall tire, I unwound the plastic cap and pressed the tip of my finger like a ray gun into the metal needle and enjoyed the hiss of escaping air. I was glad to see the massive metal frame slowly sink low. Javier, the Mexican janitor, surprised me from behind, grabbed me by the arm and growled, Mickey, what's wrong with you? <laughs> with my face turned away from him, I froze on tiptoes, held my breath, and tried to think of words that would make him that would make sense to him. And after a thousand seconds, Javier let me go. Thank you. Thank you, Rudy. That was great. Again, I'm, I want to I read the rest of it. Um, up next... Um, uh, we have a return writer, a return reader from uh, Leah Woodall um, is a creative non nonfiction writer, and she'll be echoing her uh, Litfest participant reading performance from last year with a new essay dedicated to daughters of difficult moms. Please welcome Leah Woodall. 
Can you hear me? Kind of. Okay, so you know what? My mom changed, and I'm, she's no longer difficult. And so I'm doing a little bait and switch. It's really a lie. Um, but this opportunity to read is so um, valued in our community. And so it occurred to me last night that I really wanted to read two poems from someone who can't be here because she's a 17-year-old that I mentor living in a lockdown facility. And um, I'm really impressed with her. Um, She writes poetry. I've learned a lot about poetry from her. And um, so I hope you'll bear with me um, about this. Um, I met her through the Bounce Back program that Lighthouse has initiated um, that works uh, with uh, uh, youth who are at risk, who are interested in writing at two different facilities nearby. And uh, what an experience. And I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, Contact Megan Nix. I can't tell you my mentee's name. It would be unsafe for me to do that. Um, Some of the girls there are in witness protection. Some of them have pimps waiting at the 7-Eleven for the day that they run. Um, Some of them have never lived with their birth families. And um, pretty amazing people. The first poem uh, she brought to me the first time I met her and read it to me, and I'd like to share it with you. Dear Addiction. Dear Addiction, how did you grow up so fast? Wasted those years high, but now that's in the past. I find myself feeling the pain, but there you go again, burning through my veins. Dear Addiction, how did you become so big? It started out a line here and there, but then I started sticking needles everywhere. Nothing seemed to matter anymore. I found myself homeless because I sold everything just to score. A monster and what they call a whore. Falling only one direction towards my connect's door. Dear addiction, I've wasted years running the cold streets. No real place to call home. Just the hard concrete. Time and time again I said it was the last time, but I always kept going back just for one last high. Dear addiction, you made me hurt the ones that came, took them far away. The distance was too much to bear, but how could you? I thought you had my back. You just left me alone, just lonely. Dear addiction, Today I still continue to fight. I won't let you beat me. I know that without you, I'll be all right, my dearest addiction. So it took us a couple sessions to work up to the idea of workshopping, and uh, she loved it. I was so nervous about how it was going to go. And one of the things I would... um, ask, what I request out there is if this has moved you today and you have a piece of scrap paper with you, write, me, write her a note and I will take it to her on Saturday. This next poem was the first writing exercise we did together. That was four weeks in. I was very nervous about this too. Um, she'd been bringing to me um, a lot of dark, dark poetry 
and uh, I wanted to see if she could write something different. And so the exercise was um, I asked her, uh, first of all, she she also participates in it. Um, I think the word is equine um, program where she works with a horse, therapeutic horse, um, all white, named Bingo. And um, so as I was driving over there that morning, I thought, you know what? I want her to be on that horse today. And so I asked her to sit there in the saddle and look out over Bingo's ears and uh, asked if she saw the Rocky Mountains or the prairie or a city street and right from that spot. And this is an alphabet poem just to give her a form to write in. So every uh, line begins with a new letter of the alphabet. A new hope today. Approaching the world clean and sober, becoming something big, coming to a place where I can breathe, determined to stay flat on my feet, embracing each moment, forgiving people that hurt me, giving all that I have to the horse. Hope fills my doubted mind. I can feel everything. Joy fills my sad soul. Kindness in my heart speaks loud. Living every moment with no regrets, moving along on the right path. Nothing can fear me now. Open-minded for what's next to come. Positivity consumes me. Quit the bad life. Remember the pain from yesterday. Still standing strong through the cold wind. Teaching myself control and discipline. Unpredictable for what's next to come. Vivid memories still linger. Windows of the bad life are now closed. Excited for good life waiting for me. Yesterdays are now over. Zen has finally come. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Thanks very much. Um, our next reader tonight is um, Nancy Bentley. Um, Nancy is a writer who lives at the top of a mesa in Colorado Springs. She has authored um, several children's books and adult essays, and she, she attends writing classes whenever she can. Uh, tonight she's going to be reading a scene from a short story entitled Seeing the Jaguar, which is about a Costa Rican guide who has lost his way. Please give a warm welcome to Nancy Bentley. Hi, everybody. Let's see. Um, this is a scene. Rodolfo sat in the warm sun with the hummingbirds whirring overhead and recalled events from his last trip that he had shared with no one, not even Maria. If he'd been honest with Dorothea, he would have answered twice to her question. Once he'd lost someone, once he'd thrown someone away. It was in the spring when Arenal had begun to awaken after a long sleep. 
He had hurried the last of his tour group off the pedestrian path, past giant elephant ear plants, and mountain fog back into the safety of the buses. Some guests were visibly disappointed. No one wanted to bring home a photo of anything less than red-yellow fire streaming down black flanks, or at the very least, a plume of smoke. But Rodolfo didn't want any unnecessary risks. Arenal was capable of unexpectedly spewing blasts of steam and deadly gases into the air, as well as viscous magna, magma. He knew the recent ground activity meant increased risk of eruption. He also knew that one man's danger was another man's elixir. So when he saw Miguel hurrying up the trail with a pretty blonde woman at his side, Rodolfo was anything but surprised. Shit, Miguel, how do you do it? Compadre, Miguel raised his hand as if to say to the woman, here's my friend, the fucking prick, the guide's guide, the one always so careful, so afraid of life. Tell me, Rodolfo, how is the she-dragon this afternoon, breathing fire yet? Was it Miguel's mocking tone that had made Rodolfo pause, or his dashing uphill stance in marked contrast to Rodolfo's downhill flight, or the beautiful woman by his side? What do you say, Rodolfo? Do you think it's safe for a quick trip to the observation deck? You mean for a quick tryst, Rodolfo thought to himself. Watch him, Miss Ellen, the way he holds his head, Miguel jeered. A real guide. He has this way of talking with nature. Just so. He thrust his finger toward Rodolfo's chest. It makes him better than all our guides and scientists and their equipment put together. In spite of Miguel's taunt, Rodolfo had instinctively taken a whiff of the air, smelling it for traces of life or death. It was then he felt the jaguar heavy on his chest. All he needed to say was, Don't go, Miguel. It's dangerous. Instead, he had looked at Miguel with the pretty tourist and said, For you, Miguel, it is always safe. Later, Rodolfo knew that if either of them had had the sense to look at the volcano and not talk behind her back, they would have seen the smoke oozing from the scar in her side. They would have heard her angry heart beating. He would relive a hundred times the call he received in the night, saying that Miguel and the woman had been overcome by toxic fumes and weren't expected to live through the week. Had Rodolfo seen them on the mountain that day, he was asked by his superiors? Had he warned them? If so, why had such an experienced guide as Miguel failed to heed his warning? Afterwards, every time Rodolfo came near Arenal, all he could smell was his own guilt. Thank you, Nancy. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. Okay, let's see. Um, our next reader for the evening is Shelley Catterson. Um, Shelley listens to local stories in her tiny mountain post office uh, between the creek and railroad tracks, and her, her writing is printed by the fine people at Wolverine Farm Publishing. That's a great name. Um, Stories on Stage chose this story, Rebels, for their flash fiction show, which was performed by uh, actors of the Buntport Theater. Please give a welcome to Shelley Catterson.
Hi there. I, uh, it's just strange. I once rode with a group of teenagers on horses to look at that volcano. So, but anyway, um, so the stories on stage experience um, was so surreal and amazing. It made me consider always having an actor give my readings. Um, I mean, actors are extroverts and stuff, right? And so, um, but this was too last minute, so here I am. Rebels. Ain't there a law you can shoot trespassers? Bruce asked Omar as they tossed their camp chairs over and climbed through the barbed wire fence in the dark. I expect there is, Omar said as he stretched the wire for Bruce. When Omar lifted his backpack from the tall grass, he realized he left his keys in the ignition as if he grew up here. And he already talked like a hick after only a few months but he stood on the wrong side of the fence to turn back to his truck. And that don't worry you, Bruce asked, already knowing the answer. Omar, with his weird name, liked to push the envelope hard. But the two teenagers didn't risk touching each other in town where the word might get back to Bruce's parents. Omar was an orphan from the city who moved in with his grandmother. Now they are inviting a rancher to shoot them, and even Omar's grandmother wouldn't be able to claim a hate crime. And all just to watch a movie outside and drink a little wine. The image from Omar's DVD player barely made a dent in the huge abandoned drive-in movie screen. But they got the idea. They inched their chairs closer together, raking trails into the dirt, the grass. After only 20 minutes watching East of Eden, the rancher showed up. Bruce and Omar parted like a reluctant Red Sea. Omar felt as if he were defying gravity, pulling away from what was only natural to him. Even his fear paled in that heat. Mr. Zimmer left his headlights on, and Bruce saw the shotgun cradled in his right arm. He raised the gun at both of them after he slipped through the fence. Bruce's dad was a gun collector. His dad and Mr. Zimmer knew each other from the Elks Lodge. Bruce imagined his own skull on the wall alongside those dead elk. Evening, Mr. Zimmer, Omar said. The boys rose up as if a judge just entered. That you, Bruce and Omar? Mr. Zimmer's voice, full of their names, made Bruce long for the city, for a new country, another planet. Yes, sir, they answered, an echo of each other. Hell, he said, squinting hard in the half-light. What are you doing? Watching James Dean, Omar answered. Even at this moment, the gun still aimed high. Omar almost admitted they thought the tragic actor was hot. (laughs) Dean was wicked fine and talented. Mr. Zimmer glanced glanced up at the screen. I remember this one, Mr. Zimmer said, his face melting slightly. Excellent book, too. Bruce and Omar exchanged looks with peaked eyebrows. They both had pored over the heavy novel last spring. They already knew the movie showed only a slice of the full story, a glimmer that James Dean made into a full epic. But their shoulders didn't relax until Mr. Zimmer set down his gun and said, Pass me that wine, son. I might want to watch for a spell. Thank you.
we find out Mr. Zimmer is a movie buff. <laughs> Thank you, Shelley. Um, our next reader t- uh, tonight is uh, Ruth Hart Siegel. Um, Ruth is an, ins- an aspiring screenwriter, thanks largely to Lighthouse Writers Workshops, Workshop and the uh, instructors, instructor and screenwriter David Mulholland, without whose support and encouragement she could not even have even dreamed of, much less actually written her first screenplay called Hung Up. Um, while she understands the magnitude of the task of bringing it to the silver screen, she plans to give it um, all, give it her all to get uh, the attention of the powers that be in Hollywood. And she's hopeful that her marriage of nearly 25 years to her amazing husband will give her the perseverance um, and that the decades of raising two fabulous sons will give her the patience. And that her day job as a marketing public relations consultant will give her the mad skills she needs to get this job done. Um, please give a warm welcome to Ruth Hart Siegel. Thank you. This is a first for me, and I also wish I had some actors. Um, but I'll just, if you bear with me, um, I'm going to be a lot of happy two actors in this. Um, Here's the premise or the log line of my screenplay, um, which is called Hung Up. When a quirky market researcher with an addiction to modern-day technology suddenly finds herself in the 1980s, she struggles to adapt to to pre-digital life and connect with others on a human level or risk never returning to the present and finding love. In the scene I'm about to read, the main character, Laura, has traveled back in time to the 1980s And she's um, late 20s. However, she hasn't quite accepted it as a fact. She thinks her friend and coworker Fran has pulled an elaborate hoax, and she's feeling lost without her cell phone. In this scene, Fran has yanked Laura into the ladies' room to find out why she's acting so strange. Fran pulls Laura into the ladies' room, dropping her handbag on the floor. Fran, did something happen? Laura. That's what I'd like to know. Seriously, I need my phone. Fran, you're not making a lot of sense. Laura, I'm not? Fran, no, you're acting weird, not to mention the way you're dressed. Did something happen last night? Laura leans up against the tile wall, slides down until she's sitting on the floor, closes her eyes for a moment, takes a deep breath. Fran takes a seat next to her. Laura, yes, something happened. Fran, Start from the beginning. Laura. Okay, Will and I were hosting a tweet-up. Fran interrupts. A twit what? A tweet-up, Laura. A tweet-up. You know, using Twitter to meet up. We were doing consumer research. You were there, Fran. I was? Did you just call me a twit? Laura studies Fran's face, which is blank, then starts laughing. Fran. What's so funny? Laura. I don't know. I must have hit my head harder than I thought. Fran, you hit your head at the twit-up? Laura, tweet-up. No, afterwards, Will left the bar in a hurry. He was upset with me. Fran, you were at a bar with Rembrandt? Laura, for the tweet-up, try to stay with me. When I finally left, I tripped or something, and when I woke up, I was in a vault under the sidewalk, and Will was gone. Fran, a vault under the sidewalk? Laura, you know where restaurants and shops store their stuff? Fran, what were you doing at a bar? Laura, working with Will. Fran, on the cellular phone project? 
Laura's face lights up. Right, right, we were prepping for the smartphone pitch. Laura, smartphone, oh, I'm sorry. Fran, what do you mean smartphone? Laura, smartphone, you know, iPhone, Galaxy, Blackberry. Fran looks puzzled. Laura stands up, starts pacing, back and forth, back and forth. Fran, why don't you tell me the part about hitting your head? How many fingers am I holding up? Fran holds up three fingers. Laura rubs her head. Laura, three, Fran, good. Do you know the date? Laura, September 6th. Fran, that's right. She looks at her watch. Jesus, I forgot about the press release. We need to get it out, and I need your help. Laura looks at Laura. But you sure as hell can't go out there looking like this. Laura, looking like what? Fran, we're going to have to do something about the way you're dressed. You look anything but normal. Laura, laughing, look who's talking. Think really big hair. Fran grabs Laura's shoulders, stops her from pacing, spins her around, surveys her outfit. Fran, it's bizarre, but I think I can work with it. She pulls a can of hairspray from her purse. Thank you. That was great. Um, I, early in the evening, we had a, um, a preview <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a story that requires a denouement now. So um, I'd like to bring back to the mic uh, uh, an old favorite. You've, you've seen her read before. You know her. You love her. <laughs> Please welcome Jeanette Matusiak. Thank you so much. Thanks for the indulgence. Um, I can picture my brother listening to this podcast being like, you're such a spaz. Um, I actually had all of the work right here. I just shuffled them in nerves and learned from me that you should number your pages. So I'm just going to take us back two paragraphs. Um, So again, thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Just as I was ready to lift, I say, Dad, so remember when Jimmy Durante walks in with an elephant and someone stops him and asks, where are you going with that elephant? By then, we would have whispered, one, two, three. And I'd have him propped up vertical in my arms, his legs resting bent underneath for a brief second, like a string puppet relying on help from above to move. A sense of anxiety and dread filled me each time. During the crucial pivot to the bed, I would mimic Durante's trademark gravel voice and say, what elephant? My clumsy movements coupled with his laughter brought us crashing onto the bed in hysterics many times. My arms sometimes still stuck behind him, my face plastered against his neck and the pillow laughing. I'd leave a kiss on his cheek on my way back up. It was better when my giant brothers were home With one good hug under his arms, they could lift him with a force I was not capable of. Move out of the way, please, they would say. I was only too happy when they were around. I shirked it whenever I could. But since I was the youngest, I always seemed to be around more. Our movie quotes were always important to me. Because if we fell, I wanted us to be laughing. I wanted my father's seizing laugh to be what brought us down. Not the weakness in his own body not my inability to negotiate what was bigger than me, not the humiliation he faced every time I helped him to bed or bathroom. 
I wanted sheer comedic timing and genius to be the cause of our misfortune. If a rib was ever going to crack, couldn't Jackie Gleason be to blame? Thank you. What watch? <laughs> Nearly 10 watch. Um, which brings us to our last reader of the evening. Um, and this being my, uh, well, it's, it's not my choice, but uh, I'm going to take credit for the fact that the last reader of the evening is a poet. <laughs> um, our last reader tonight is Andrea Doré. Um, Andrea is a poet essayist and former cook of the week. <laughs> she serves on the board for the International Organization Writing for Peace, and she pens a weekly opinion column for suburban Denver, Denver newspapers. Um, she's an advocate of literacy, free speech, a free, pe a free press, and funny stories, and she tweets, blogs, and talks in her sleep about all of the above. Um, and she's a darn fine poet to boot. Please give a warm welcome to Andrea Doré. Thank you. Thanks, JD. And thanks to all of you. I'm delighted that you stayed. And I'm also delighted to share with you a work tonight that had its genesis in last year's Lit Vest. I find that it gives me tons of inspiration, and I expect to finish this work that I started last year, this collection. And then I'll leave you with one final thought. Occupied. This neighborhood has become jungles. And three tour vet coughs on his porch across the drive all day. And two doors down, another guy fresh from the desert screams, God damn you, Maggie! when he steps into bones and entrails left there by a neighbor's cat. As the reunited couple, just feet from where I sit, slam, spit, spew, although she cowers behind their car. And some jerk has left dog shit in my yard that, of course, steams in summer stink. But some savior still trespasses to spike our doors with tracks while this neighborhood becomes deltas so that splits of land and wayward fingers of fresh water sink heavy with salt. Thank you. Then a final thought for the night. It's called Ex Post Facto. If you're not in there, Wesley Kent, then you were never meant to be. For he who would be daddy went and had him a vasectomy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. That's one of my favorites of yours. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for coming tonight.
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.